0: Jeremiah tonight, chapter 3, if you're with us this evening, on Sunday night we go through the Bible from Genesis to Revelation, and if you're with us tonight and you're without a Bible, men are coming up the aisles with Bibles right now, and you just wave and get their attention, and they'll put a Bible in your hand, and that way you get to hear the Word of God, but then read it as well, and it has double the impact as a result. If you don't own a Bible, please make that Bible a gift from the Lord. To you tonight. The major theme of this chapter, and we remember that the book of Jeremiah is named after the prophet Jeremiah who is prophesying to the southern kingdom of Judah about a hundred years after the northern kingdom of Israel went into captivity to the Assyrians. In uh, Jeremiah's lifetime, the southern kingdom of Judah is also going to go into captivity, not to the Assyrians but to the Babylonians. And God called Jeremiah to a 40, 45-year ministry of prophesying to the nation, uh, southern kingdom of Judah, and warning them to repent and to turn from their sin that they might not uh, have to endure this chastening that Babylon was going to uh, represent. The major theme of this chapter is the word return in some form, Or another, the Hebrew word shove, which means to turn or to return, uh, is used 18 times in the chapter. Uh, The word backsliding is used seven times, and it's God's way of uh, declaring that the only cure to backsliding is to return to God, and it is to repent of my sin and return to the relationship that I once had with Him. God in, these, uh, in chapter 3 and into chapter 4, He is addressing the question of whether His relationship or His marriage with uh, Israel is uh, going to survive the spiritual adultery of Judah. It's important to realize that in the New Testament when uh, God describes our relationship with, uh, as Christians, with Him, we are referred to as the Bride of Christ, and that's the imagery, the kind of espousal or the betrothal or the marriage imagery that's used to describe our relationship with Jesus Christ. In the Old Testament, and we'll see it in in some of what we're looking at tonight, but throughout the Old Testament, the relationship that is portrayed between God and Israel as a whole, southern kingdom and northern kingdom, is that he was the groom and they were the bride. They were the wife, the bride of God. It spoke about the intimacy and the beauty, the commitment of the relationship of God to the Jewish people. And so so again, he continues the language as we saw last time, Of him viewing the sin, the wickedness, the idolatry of the southern kingdom of Judah, and him viewing it as spiritual adultery or spiritual unfaithfulness to him in that kind of marriage relationship uh, that they had. And so he continues the imagery now in chapter 3. They say, Uh, and he's speaking, Jeremiah is now prophesying on behalf of God related to uh, something that was contained in the law of Moses, that if a man divorces his wife and she goes from him and then remarries and becomes another man's wife, uh, may he return to her again. And that was prohibited in the law of Moses. If you divorced uh, your wife, she remarried, she could not come back, and remarry uh, you. Would not that that land be greatly polluted, God said, um, if that became commonplace or that became the situation. And then He declares to Judah, but you have played the harlot with many lovers. And then really the majestic word here is the word yet, and God says, yet return to Me. He uh, has already shown them and proven the fact that they have been dis, uh, unfaithful in the relationship that they had with Him. They've committed uh, a, a spiritual adultery against Him. He says their, uh, their uh, um, spiritual immorality is on the level of a harlot having many uh, lovers. This gives, the, gives you the idea. I mean, would you, would you remarry a man or a woman who had uh, been in harlotry? Hosea did. But, I mean, normally you wouldn't. And here is God. This is the degree of which they violated His heart, violated their covenant with God. And God says, yet return to Me, says the Lord. And He makes the offer to them to repent of their sin and return to a relationship with Him. Wow. I don't know, a lot of guys, a lot of gals that would do that. And here is God extending that offer to a nation. I've been in the situation uh, many times over the course of, you know, pastoring for about uh, 32 years, counseling with married couples whose marriage is now threatened by um, the adultery of either the husband or the wife. And not always is it the case But every once in a while, uh, the husband or the wife will look to the spouse that has violated them in this great violation of the marriage covenant. And they look to that sinning spouse and they give that spouse another opportunity. They extend forgiveness to them and an opportunity to now move forward in the marriage. It's a tremendous sacrifice on the part of the person who then, who extends that grace to uh, the sinning partner. And if you've ever been in that scene and uh, in kind of a counseling session, we'll say, and you watch that, you realize something very, very holy, something very costly, something very gracious is being extended on the part of one person to another something that the one does not deserve. And I think to myself when I've seen it through the years, I think to myself only a fool would say no to that offer that's been extended to them. Think about how much even beyond what happens physically in uh, the natural marriage of a man and woman. And here you have God Himself, the violation is not against a husband or a wife, but God Almighty. And He extends this grace now to the southern kingdom of Judah and says, "'Yet for all that you've done, return to Me.'" I mean, it's just the language is poetic, it, but, but what it represents in the heart of God is, I mean, just majestic there in, in verse 1, very, very powerful. And Judah would have been crazy to say no to this second chance, and yet they do. And I've seen that happen as well, and it's one of the most heartbreaking things you will ever witness. And then God, God goes on and declares uh, to uh, uh, Jeremiah concerning the, the pollution that, the, that filled the land of, of, uh, of Israel, all of the idolatry and the wickedness. He said, "'Lift up your eyes to the desolate heights.' and see. Where have you not, uh, God speaks to Judah, lain with men? Again, the idea is spiritual uh, uh, adultery. By the road you have sat for them. In other words, they've been, that's how, where harlots uh, stood out. Uh, and like an Arabian in the wilderness, and you have polluted the land with your harlot trees and your wickedness. Isn't it interesting, we, you know, we look at the book of Jeremiah, we think, oh, yes, okay, this book, 2,600 years old, and what does it have to do with such a sophisticated group of people, well, at least like me. You know, in the United States of America, this is the way we think of ourselves in this country and this old archaic book and what could it ever speak to us and all, but... We face all the same, t- same temptations. All oh, the technology isn't the same. The advances, the in- inventions, none of that is the same. But the heart of man is the same. The temptation of man is the same. God is the same. Nothing really new under the sun. And that word pollution is an interesting one there at the end of verse 2. The entire land has become polluted by their wickedness, by their harlotries, by their idolatries. And I remember um, back when I was in high school in the early 70s, and uh, many of us remember, you know, people were just becoming aware in the 60s and the 70s of pollution. You know, we just about killed the Great Lakes and all kinds of things back in those days. I mean, we were just pumping anything and eating anything, you know. A good breakfast was like a couple of Pop-Tarts because the astronauts ate it, you know, and, and some other kind of ungodly whatever, you know, you'd eat in just a nutty time. But uh, it was, you know, it was the 70s. uh, But we're becoming aware of pollution. And you remember the Native American who was out on the side of the road and the whole bag of litter is thrown out of the car. And back when I was a kid, people just threw litter out of the... Nobody thought anything about it, and then somebody started talking about litter, and I was like, oh, is that wrong? You know, and, and then kind of a national consciousness, and then, you know, that Native American, the tear went down from his eye, and so we've become, you know, increasingly concerned about the fact that we're not here to destroy the planet that God has made us stewards over, and that, you know, you do have to take care of it. And so we're very, very um, in tune or acutely aware of the importance of... Uh, minimizing or staying away from, you know, pollution in terms of the air, the importance of it in terms of our water supply. But here God is talking about moral pollution. He's talking about spiritual pollution. And isn't it something about our country and the Western world as a whole, but our, our country because that's where we live, how every single day, I mean, global warming and all these different things, we are so up in arms over pollution and yet, there is no concern for moral pollution within our country by and large, within the church there is, or the spiritual pollution, something that is far more dangerous to a nation and uh, and here they were concerned about what they were concerned about, but not the pollution of their hearts, not the pollution of immorality and and sin and wickedness uh, that 's something that uh, is just as great and certainly a greater. Uh, damage that it does uh, to a nation. And then, therefore, the showers have been withheld, God said, and there's been no latter rain. Uh, God began to deal with them by holding back the rain, and God can do that. I don't know. It's interesting. A number of years ago, remember when they had that big fire in California? I don't know. It was just everywhere. It seemed like there was a fire. And uh, And everyone was saying, this is the judgment of God upon California and so forth, you know. The problem is, is that when the winds began to blow, it blew all of the smoke into the Central Valley. You remember those two or three days where you were just like choking, you thought you lived in Shanghai or something like that? And uh, so God did this, you know, and I thought to myself, that can't be true because if there is a Bible Belt in California, the Central Valley is that Bible Belt. I mean, if He really wanted to do judgment, He would take that smoke and just camp it on the coast and keep it away from the Central Valley. So a lot of times we look at things that this is judgment and so forth, and it really isn't. But God can withhold the rains. I mean, we're just coming out of a... a barely coming out of... A, and not quite out of a long series of years of drought in the state of California. Is it God's judgment? I don't know. Sometimes I wonder about it again because... Um, why is he going to pick on the Central Valley that's going to be, picked, be harmed the worst than uh, other places where they have a ready water supply so often and, uh, and are far more wicked than we are? Uh, not as wicked as some of the uh, people that I know in the Central Valley, but right up there, um, you know, uh, with him. I don't want you to think we're all like virtuous just by vir- <laughs> virtue of the fact that we live in the Central Valley, but he was holding back the rain and uh, they weren't putting two plus two together and realizing, oh, God's using this to try and get our attention. He said, You have a harlot's forehead. Uh, you refuse to uh, be shamed. And so, one of the characteristics to be, you refuse to be ashamed. And one of the characteristics of Judah at that time was that they were engaged in tremendous sin and wickedness, but. Uh, They uh, didn't possess any kind of shame. There was no shame over sin any longer within the culture. It's a a tragic thing for a culture when that culture experiences the death of shame. Uh, When I was a, 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 a youngster here in the United States, it wasn't unusual for a teacher or for an authority figure to speak to not only me, but any one of us in elementary school and even beyond that, when we did something that was shameful, they would say something like, you ought to be ashamed of yourself, you know, or shame on you. Today, they talk about the snowflake generation that can't take any kind of criticism or anything at all. Trust me, back then, they weren't so concerned about us melting under withering whatever, and, there, and it wasn't unusual when we did something that we should have been ashamed for but we're showing no shame for at all. Someone in authority would remind us of the fact that we ought to be ashamed. And we, of course, have worked very hard in the last 30 years in this country to remove any stigma related to wrongdoing for fear that it will hurt people's feelings. And, and without the recognition that shame is a very, very valuable, uh, uh, it has a valuable place in the heart and in the life of every single one of us. We f- should feel shame when we do something shameful. It causes us to repent when we do that. It causes us to be hesitant to do that same uh, thing in uh, the future. And so today, this whole stigma of shame attached to really any wickedness has been largely removed uh, from the culture. And it's very, very dangerous for us, by the way, this grand experiment that's going on that we're in the middle of uh, in our country. And it'll be interesting in the next two or three generations to see what it's translating uh, into. Shame, I looked it up, uh, I looked up one definition of shame. And it, it, and it gave this definition, a painful feeling of humiliation. Not just a feeling of humiliation, but a painful feeling of humiliation. How many of you have experienced it in your life? All right, show of hands, there we go. All right, that's the most of it, good. All right, so you haven't been indoctrinated yet. A shameful feeling of humiliation or distress caused by the consciousness of wrong or foolish behavior. And I would venture to guess that every one of us who have uh, justly felt this within our bosom, within our, uh, within our lives, could speak to all of us tonight and say, feeling that at that moment did me no long-term good. I mean bad. It was very unpleasant at the moment, but it didn't do me uh, any long-term harm. Someone wrote, where there, uh, where there is shame, there is virtue and the idea is where there is shame there is still virtue in a culture there is still virtue in a human life and the absence of shame it reveals the far greater problem of an absence of virtue in a human heart that's what's been removed now with the removal of shame and that's what had happened in the uh, nation of uh, uh, southern kingdom of of Judah here and he goes on and says will you not from this time cry to me and my father you are the guide you're the guide of my youth will he remain angry forever will he keep it uh, to the end behold you have spoken and done evil things as you were able god calls judah interestingly here calls them to repentance And their response, essentially what's being communicated in verse 4 and 5, is the people respond to God by basically telling Him, you're too uptight. This is a new age. This is a new day. Nobody buys your old definitions of right and wrong and so forth. It's a nice moral guidebook that you've given to us. But we're way too smart, way too sophisticated for that. We've grown out of that. We don't need to change. You got to stop being so uptight about right and wrong. You ever kind of feel that in this culture related to God? We don't need to change what God needs to change. He's the one that's got way too strict of a standard in terms of right and wrong, and we'll wait him out until he kind of chills and changes those definitions. The problem is is that God doesn't change, and we're thankful for that. But that was the attitude. God is out of touch with reality, and I feel that all the time within the culture as His Word and His wisdom is rejected. People take this commandment and that commandment, and they say, look at how old-fashioned this is. Nobody will believe that. We've moved beyond all of this. And we don't realize that we are just a little 30, 50, 70, 80, however long a person might live, little slice in a very long uh, season in history. Sometimes things can be protected in terms of sin within a culture, or they can be defended within that culture, and then you won't, we won't find out until two or three generations down the road what the consequences were, and then to find out that God was right all along. Our job and our calling is to stay true to what God is saying and to His standard and to His Word, even while the world may be 50 years away from learning the hard way that He was the only one that knew what He was talking about in the year 2016. And then in uh, verse 6, God goes on and uh, and we have here the record of uh, Jeremiah's second prophecy that he delivers to the uh, uh, kingdom of Judah during the days of Josiah uh, the king. And in this section, God speaks to Judah about their failure to learn from learn the lessons from the northern kingdom of Israel when they went into captivity. The northern kingdom of Israel went into captivity, as I said, to the Assyrians a hundred years earlier because of their idolatry, their wickedness, and their sin. And Judah's doing the same thing now as Israel did and thinking it's going to have a different outcome for them. And so, uh, you know, the Lord, uh, you know, confronts him uh, related to this, learn from somebody else 's mistake. I, I learned almost everything I learn uh, by mistake. At, at least it feels that way in my life, but i 'm always thankful for what I do learn by watching other people. Uh, you, you may be um, um, uh, comforted to know that i don 't smoke. It doesn't make me better than people who, who do smoke. But you know why I don't smoke? Uh, one of the reasons I don't smoke is I watched it kill my mother. Uh, th- two, three, four packs a day kill my mother. And so I might not have got a lot out of my childhood, but I learned one thing, don't smoke. And so in life, not just in the physical realm, but in the spiritual realm as well, sin realm, to learn as we look at other people and learn lessons from their lives. And one of the things that the southern kingdom of Judah ought to have learned is there's no future in backsliding. Uh, I personally have never ever looked at, you, and you haven't either, ever looked at a backslider and then as a result of looking at a backslider, walking away saying, the one thing that I learned is I want to backslide. Uh, The backslider has a lesson for everyone, and that is don't backslide. There's no future here. So to learn from other people without having to learn it firsthand. And so the Lord said, have you seen what uh, backsliding Israel has done as he speaks to Judah? She's gone up on every high mountain and under every green tree, and there she played the harlot, talking about Israel's idolatry and immorality associated with it. And then I said, after she had done all these things, God says, return to me. But she did not return. And her treacherous sister, Judah, who Jeremiah is talking to, she saw all of this. She saw what Israel did and where it landed them in bondage and in captivity. And then I saw that for all of the causes for which backsliding Israel had committed adultery... I had put her away and given her a certificate of divorce. Yet her treacherous sister Judah did not fear, but went out and played the harlot also, engaged in spiritual uh, adultery. And so it came to pass through her casual harlotry that she defiled the land and committed adultery with stones and trees. Talking about idolatry and the worship Uh, of them, these idols made of stones and trees. And yet, for all this, her treacherous sister Judah has not turned to me with her whole heart, but in pretense. And God says, you don't believe that idolatry and wickedness and and evil is going to have a different outcome in your life, Judah, than it had in Israel. And you can take it to a personal level in any of our lives uh, as well. And then God says something very interesting in verse 11, and then the Lord said to me, backsliding Israel, northern kingdom, has shown herself more righteous than treacherous Judah. Well, how could that be? Because the northern kingdom of Israel never even pretended to worship Jehovah. They were out-and-out idolaters, out-and-out sinners, And you remember they set up the golden calves, one uh, under Jeroboam, one in Ai, and then one in Bethel, and they worshiped Baal in the northern kingdom of Israel. And that's what they were about. They didn't pretend to worship Jehovah or worship Yahweh and then in this private place worshiping uh, Baal or these false gods. They were out and out open about their sin. There was no hypocrisy about them. They were exactly what they were, and God is speaking and declaring concerning Israel. They were at least honest in their idolatry. They did it just in defiance of me. But you do it in hypocrisy. You pretend to worship me, and yet in the privacy of your life, you are engaged in, in, uh, in all of these things, and God viewed it as a greater treachery uh, against him than even what Israel had done. And then the Lord uh, said to me, "'Backsliding Israel has shown herself more righteous than treacherous Judah, and go proclaim these words toward the north, saying, "'Return, backsliding Israel.'" This is the message that God has, though they're in captivity, says the Lord. "'And I will not cause my anger to fall on you, for I am merciful,' says the Lord. "'I will not remain angry forever.'" Only acknowledge your iniquity that you have transgressed against the Lord your God and have scattered your charms to alien deities under every green tree, and you have not obeyed my voice, says the Lord. And so God is desiring with the northern kingdom of Judah, I mean Israel, now scattered, a very small Jewish population there. They're in Assyrian ca- captivity, and yet here He still calls on them to cease the... Their sin and, and his desire to restore the relationship uh, with their repentance. All the way through here, there is, the, is such a strong, strong confronting them with their sin, but then in order to keep hope alive, as he wants to do in any of our hearts tonight where we might be in a backslidden condition, though nobody else knows it but, but God, but he keeps hope alive. Turn, turn, return to me, and then I will restore the relationship. A lot of grace in the middle of these strong words designed to get their attention and to make them realize, not fall asleep to the danger of their, of their condition. It's very easy when you backslide, and uh, I don't think there's a Christian in the world that doesn't know something about it. The Bible talks about the backslider and heart will be filled with all of his ways Backsliding always begins in the heart, in that place where we just kind of fall back a little bit in our lives in terms of uh, the standard of right and wrong in our lives or in our relationship with, with God. And, uh, and so there's that, uh, and one of the things that happens that's so dangerous is that we begin to f- think that we can get comfortable there now, all right? God didn't, like, whammy me, you know, in, in right now, and I've been a month doing this or two months doing this. It must be okay. And when we get into that kind of a spiritual slumber, God has to really raise the volume to make us realize that it isn't okay, but then also with the message of return. I'm saying all of these things to wake you up, but to bring you back to the relationship. I don't want to judge you. I want to love you, and I want to have this relationship with you. And then in verse 14, uh, God gives a a promise concerning Israel and Judah that one day they will be restored back into the land uh, of, of Israel. He said, "'Return, O backsliding children,' says the Lord, "'For I am married to you.'" So here we see the imagery of uh, God the Father as uh, the husband of Israel who is the wife under the old covenant. "'For I am married to you, I will take you, uh, one from a city and two from a family, and I will bring you to Zion, and I will give you shepherds according to my heart who will feed you with knowledge and understanding.'" There's an element of this that was fulfilled when they returned from uh, their captivity back into the land, and yet there's a fulfillment, uh, a future fulfillment of this prophecy that we're reading that will occur following the tribulation period in the thousand-year reign uh, of Christ. And we come to that portion of it here, verse 16, and then it shall come to pass when you are multiplied and Increased in the land in those days, says the Lord, that I will say, uh, that they will say no more the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord. And so the Ark of the Covenant in the Old Covenant, it represented the presence of God and the Jewish people, their kind of their greatest uh, claim to fame or their uh, greatest source of pride was that they possessed the Ark, that God lived in the midst of them. And since the Ark of the Covenant represented the presence of God, they would say uh, they had kind of a, a, you know, religious lingo, the Ark of the Covenant, the Ark of the Covenant. It meant something uh, good to them. And and the fact that they possessed this highest symbol of God's presence. And yet the Lord went on and said, "'It shall not come to mind, this Ark of the Covenant, "'this glorying in the Ark uh, of the Covenant. "'It shall not come to mind, nor shall they remember it, "'nor shall they visit it, nor shall it be made anymore. "'At that time Jerusalem shall be called the throne of the Lord.'" Speaking of when Jesus comes back, and reigns over the world for a thousand years from Jerusalem uh, before the white throne judgment. And all of the nations shall be gathered uh, to it, uh, to the name of the Lord, to Jerusalem. And so there won't be this symbol of the presence of the Lord. The presence of the Lord in the kingdom age will be represented by Jesus himself there. Again, this is a future fulfillment. And no more shall they follow the dictates of their evil hearts and in those days the house of Judah shall uh, walk with the house of Israel, and they shall come together out of the land of the north to the land which I have given as an inheritance to their fathers. But I said, How can I put you among the children and give you a pleasant land, a beautiful heritage of the hosts of nations? And I said, you shall call me my father and uh, not turn away from me. Surely, as a wife treacherously departs from her uh, husband, and treachery speaks of, of betrayal, again, their spiritual adultery, so you have dealt treacherously with me, O house of Israel, uh, says the Lord. A voice, then, as he uh, continues in verse uh, 21. Uh, God begins to uh, speak to them in, in, of the depth of repentance that would be required of Judah in order for God's healing to come uh, into, uh, into their lives. And he says, "...a voice was heard on the desolate heights, weeping and supplications of the children of Israel, for they have perverted their way." They have forgotten the Lord their God. And then here it is again. And again, against such darkness of what he's, he's, he's confronting them with. And then comes this, uh, you know, like a, um, uh, just this beautiful flash of light. And then God comes in and says, return you backsliding children and I will heal your backslidings. And it's beautiful. The Lord says, not only will I accept you back, and this is to any backslider tonight in this room or in the world tonight. Somebody listening and streaming the service uh, right now. He promises not only to receive us when we return from our backsliding, but then to heal us of our backsliding. Because backsliding always does harm, it always injures, it always injures spiritually. And so there's a need for healing that has to occur, and only God can perform that healing. And here he is kind of taking the position of a doctor or a nurse. Come to me in your battered, horrible, addicted condition in your backsliding. Don't worry about healing yourself before you come back to me. Just come back to me, and I will heal you of the damage that you've done to yourself in the backsliding. Isn't that beautiful? It's beautiful, isn't it? And and, and some of us don't have to imagine what it would be like to hear that. And you don't have to be like a notorious sinner. You don't have to be Al Capone or Castro or someone like that. That was a dumb illustration to use, isn't it? I mean, you don't have to have murdered tens of thousands of people in order to do that. Sometimes it can be someone with an extremely tender heart toward the Lord and something that others would look at and say, that's nothing, don't worry about it. But they can't think it's nothing and not worry about it. It's disrupted their relationship with God and to realize, yes, I can come back to Him no matter what damage I've done to myself, and He will heal your backsliding. I mean, that is just the greatest, uh, you know, greatest word that you could, uh, could receive. And then uh, God tells them about what they need to do, what it means to return to Him. And the first thing that needs to happen is a confession of our sin. Indeed, we do come to you for you, and this is God is saying, this is what you need to come to me and say to me. He's giving them the speech. They don't even have to come up with a speech. You know, and God, He reads the prayer that's in our heart when we return to Him, doesn't He? Indeed, uh, we do come to you, for you are the Lord our God. And truly in vain is salvation hoped for from the hills and from the multitude of mountains. Truly in the Lord our God is the salvation of Israel. For shame has devoured the labor of our fathers from our youth, their flocks and their herds, their sons and their daughters. We lie down in our shame, and our reproach covers us, uh, for we have sinned against the Lord our God, we and our fathers, from our youth even to this day, and have not obeyed the voice of the Lord our God. I mean, that is a real confession of sin to God. The Bible says that if we confess our sins... Uh, God is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness, 1 John 1, 9. It's called the Christian bar of soap. And when it talks about us coming to God and confessing our sin to God and then receiving that washing and that forgiveness that, we, that we're asking of God, the word confess doesn't mean you know, this mindless kind of thing where, oh yeah, I sinned there and God, oh yeah, by the way, you saw it and sorry about that, and then going on about my business. Uh, The word confess means to see the sin the way that God sees it. It's deeper than just a verbal, oh yeah, sorry about that, Uh, check in with you later. It's to really stop and look and say, Lord, I I harmed my witness of you in this and the way that you know, I demonstrated myself before the family, or whatever it might be, or or whatever, just to confess it before. Him. I see it for the serious thing that you saw it as, and I ask for your uh, forgiveness. It's something deep, and it's a deep cleansing uh, that that occurs as a result. The second thing that he talks about as being necessary is repentance. He said, if you will return, chapter four, uh, chapter 4, if you will return, O Israel, says the Lord, return to me, repentance. And if you will put away your abominations out of my sight, speaking of their idolatry, uh, then you shall not be moved. You won't go into captivity. So he calls on them to repent, Repentance means to have a change of mind that results in a change of direction in my life. I not only confess my sin to God, but I turn from the direction towards sin that I'm moving in, and I do a U-turn, and I go in the other direction. The Bible teaches that godly sorrow is not repentance. Being sorry for my sin is not repentance. The Bible says godly sorrow works repentance. Godly sorrow makes me want to repent. And because I'm sorry for my sin, I then turn from the sin that I'm committing. So there needs to be a confession of sin and then there needs to be a repentance, a turning uh, from that sin to cease my idolatry or my sin. And then he goes on to speak about uh, when this is sometimes this repentance is required in a kind of a, a, a spiritual sin or religious sin, and you shall swear uh, the Lord lives, and in those days the Lord lives when the Jews would say that they 'd greet one another with shalom they 'd greet one another with the Lord lives, and it was a way of greeting God is alive and and it was kind of it had to, could turn into Christianese, but it didn't need to, and much the way same way that we say "Praise the Lord." Nobody should ever say that and not mean that. But sometimes it goes into that, that category. So here they are; they're saying the Lord lives. They're using the spiritual lingo, and uh, and and they swear in that way in uh, in, in truth, in judgment, and in righteousness. Uh, when they swear in this way, in, instead of in hypocrisy, the nations shall bless themselves in Him, and, they, uh, and in Him they shall glory. And then God goes on to speak about, again, this repentance that is significant to Him, what Judah needed to do. Invaluable instruction, by the way. And He goes on and says, "'For thus says the Lord uh, to the men of Judah and Jerusalem,' break up your fallow ground and do not sow among thorns. So he calls on them to break up their fallow ground. Fallow ground is ground that is untended. Uh, It is ground that has been neglected. Uh, And if you've ever, uh, you know, Uh, maybe bought a new home or something like that, and it was like, wow, they really fixed up the front yard. But then you go in the backyard, and the Italian thistle is about six feet high. And if you've ever pulled out Italian thistle, you know that's no fun. And so it speaks about a life. It speaks about a heart that hasn't been properly uh, uh, tended. And so he calls on them to break up your fallow ground, your unplowed, unkept, un, uh, you know, neglected ground or heart. And one of the things that a, a backslider needs to understand when we return to uh, the Lord is that it does take some work in order to return a neglected piece of ground into productivity. And the same thing happens in our own lives. Uh, there's a man that I love very much in this world and He went through a series of backslides, and one, you know, the first time he backslid from the Lord, first couple of times he did, you know, he came back into church and so forth, sat down in the worship service, and it was as alive and as real and as powerful and as wonderful as if he had never left it. And there was this kind of an idea that, hey, you can play fast and loose with God and you can leave him and come back and that'll always be waiting for you. And then one day he backslid for a time and he came back into church and it wasn't there anymore. It was gone. And it wasn't just like, yeah, that just comes back like that. And sometimes it works that way, and never, ever be discouraged by that. Never be discouraged by that. The relationship that you once had with God is still there, and it's coming. But sometimes, and he spoke to me concerning that experience, he said, I'm glad God did that to me so that the next time I was tempted to backslide, I would stop and think about how hard it was to come back and regain the relationship that I once had with God. How does God do that? He does it different with everybody. But that's what he did in this man's life, and and it did something good inside of him. So how do we um, take and restore to productivity, uh, full productivity, a heart that has been neglected during a season of backsliding? I think, again, we go back to Jesus' letter to the church at Ephesus in Revelation chapter 2. And Jesus declared, remember therefore from where you have fallen, repent and do the first works. He told him, remember the relationship that you once had with me that you no longer have anymore. Turn away from the things that have taken you away from me. And then very significantly for our purposes tonight, he said, do the first works. Go back and do all of the things that you used to do when our relationship was what you wanted it to be, when the relationship was productive, when the the relationship was properly tended. Go back to Bible study. Go back to a devotional life. Go back to prayer. Go back to being consistent in in fellowship and attending at church and so forth. Go back, and then over whatever period of time, what was once neglected and is in ruins and looks like it can never be restored will ultimately be restored. Now, for some of us, we can sit here tonight and we're not in a backsteading condition, so this is like, okay, when's he going to get on to the next point? Uh, after chapter 50-something in the book of uh, Jeremiah. But, but for the person who is in this place tonight, this instruction is so valuable. Break up your fallow ground. Do not sow among thorns. And thorns represent, remember Jesus in the parable of the soils And the seed was sown among the thorns, which represented the cares of this world and the deceitfulness of riches. Their life had been, relationship with God had been pulled away by the things and the cares uh, of the world. They needed to turn away uh, from those decisions and then circumcise yourself to the Lord and take away the foreskins of your heart, uh, you men of Judah and inhabitants of Jerusalem." And uh, the foreskin was removed as a part of the rite of circumcision with Jewish males. Uh, A Jewish baby boy was circumcised on uh, the eighth day. And it represented the removal of the flesh, that the the Jews were not going to be a people who were dominated or ruled by the flesh, but by the Spirit. And when God talks to Judah and talks elsewhere in the Bible to His people about having an uncircumcised heart, An uncircumcised heart is a heart that is still dominated by the flesh rather than by the Holy Spirit. And so he speaks to them of, circumcise yourself to the Lord, take away the foreskins of your heart, Uh, don't be dominated by yourself, your self-will, the desires and lusts of your flesh, you men of Israel and the inhabitants of Jerusalem. Uh, lest, he says, and again, the strength of the warning, my fury come uh, forth like fire and burn so that no one can quench it because of the evil of your doings. And this is kind of a major break in this second uh, prophecy of Jeremiah. Jeremiah. Again, we look at Jeremiah and we look at the book and it pounds away at the same message. And I keep promising we're going to move faster. I'm going to stop here where we are tonight, but I don't want you to stop listening to me yet. And, but, and to look at it and say, man, how many times does God have to say the same thing? And yet you and I live in the exact same world with the exact same temptations to our flesh, to fall asleep spiritually, uh, to head into a spiritual um, hypocrisy, uh, to believe that we're okay with God uh, when we're not, to violate the heart of God. And, and then all of it speaks about how much our relationship uh, to, with God means to him. Why would he bother for 50-some chapters to even bother chasing these people? Why would he bother chasing you and me except that the relationship means that much to him? Think about, again, the vulnerability of God that is represented in the chapter and four verses that we've looked at tonight. I mean, you would look at him and say, doesn't that husband have any shame? Doesn't he have any self-respect? Why would he run after his wife the way that he does? Come on, get a grip on yourself because that's what love does and that's what he's doing to Judah and that's what he does to us as well and so it has a great deal to say speak to us because we live in the same kind of world with the same temptations and we live in a nation that is falling prey to the very same things right before our eyes and we can't change a nation. We can't even change the heart of our husband or our wife or one other person. But we can be alert to it related to our own individual lives and give that to God to use in the age in which he's called us to represent him in the world. The heart of God is awesome and wonderful and beautiful beyond description as it is revealed behind the words in this book of Jeremiah let's close our time tonight by asking the worship team to come forward and lead us in worship so we have a few minutes to respond to the word of god in any kind of way that that he might want us to or just to give him the more you know even greater and more praise and worship that is in our heart to express to him tonight let the holy spirit take this time and and uh, use it for his purposes in our lives.